This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies. I am your host, Adam McNeil. Today we have on the podcast the author of a phenomenal new book published by our friends at UNC Press entitled Embattled Freedom, Journeys Through the Civil War Slave Refugee Camps. And it's actually presented today by the phenomenal author of the book, the phenomenal Dr. Amy Merle Taylor, who let's before we get her on, let's go through a host of the different prizes that she's won recently for this book. There, there's a lot, so uh, hold tight, y'all. We have the Avery O. Craven Award for Most Original Book in Civil War History from the Organization of American Historians this year. The Merle Curdy Social History Award from the same organization this year. The Tom Watson Brown Award from the Society of Civil War Historians this year, the John Now Book Prize from the John L. Now the Third Center for Civil War History from the University of Virginia. And y'all, and now the cool part is she's on the podcast for today. And so welcome to the podcast, University of Kentucky Associate Professor of History, Dr. Amy Merle Taylor. Hi, what a nice welcome. Thank you. <laughs> no problem. No problem. You deserve it. You deserve oh it. Goodness. I actually, I uh, know for sure. I, I, I'm uh, I received your, <laughs> yes, yes. That's what we want. That is what we want. <laughs> and so, um, we actually, so I actually uh, received your book. I got your book at actually, um, the OAH in Philadelphia, um, a few weeks ago. And, um, I, I had been hearing a lot about the book and, and, you know, I was like, whoa, this, this, this is really interesting. And, and I never, I never thought that I'd be a, a civil war guy because I was like, oh man, everybody seems to be doing civil war stuff. I gotta, I gotta break out of that shell, but Lord knows it brought me back like a dadgum boomerang and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and I love it. Excellent. Um, good. Yeah. So um, before we get started, can you talk to us about um, how you came to the project for Embattled Freedom. Sure. It's something that was in my head for a long time. I think probably any book author will say the same thing. And um, this is my second book on the Civil War era. I consider myself a historian of the South in the 19th century. And um, my first book was completely different. It was uh, called The Divided Family in Civil War America. But as I was doing research for it, I kept coming across references to hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children who fled slavery during the Civil War 
and took up refuge inside the lines of the Union Army. And I just, it was one of those things that just kept getting filed in my head. And I kept wondering, this sounds huge. How do I not know more about it? And so I started digging, and it's not that nothing is known about it. It's something that W.E.B. Du Bois wrote about in Black Reconstruction. Um, and it's something that historians more recently had worked into larger studies. Um, but I still found myself just wondering, what is that like to flee slavery, but then enter this military world where your housing, your food, your everyday life, your family life is right there in the middle of a war zone with an army surrounding you. Um, it was just hard for me to wrap my mind around that. And so it was one of those things that just drew me in. And um, I see it now as a, a book and a study that's part of what's really amounting to a wave of scholarship on this subject, because it's a huge topic. And um, Chandra Manning published a book, Troubled Refuge, a couple years ago. Tavolia Glimpf has a, a work that's forthcoming. Um, Jim Downs, Sick from Freedom. So we're, I think we're starting to see a wave here, and I'm, I'm glad for it, because as I say, it's a huge subject, and um, it's really one that I think will force us to look at the Civil War in a different way. And, and with that, you, you talked about the different authors that you're in conversation with. Can you speak to us a bit about what uh, uh, differentiates your book from, from theirs? Mm-hmm. Um, well, forthcoming work, it's hard for me to say, but of course, some of, of the pre- Yeah, but um, there's, there's kind of different groups of work on emancipation during the Civil War that I sort of can situate myself with. On the one hand, there are the studies that have really focused on the political and policy history of emancipation. So Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation take center stage. So when I see my work in the context of those studies, I see mine as one that kind of shifts our view out of Washington, D.C. and out of the halls of policy and then onto the ground inside these camps where the people were living to give us that sense of the everyday uh, existence and struggle of becoming free. But then uh, some of the others, like Jim Downs's work, which is fantastic, um, Sick from Freedom, is a wonderful study about, and, and Leslie Schwalm has also done some work on this too, about the, uh, the health crisis that it then emerges in the context of this wartime emancipation. And, um, you know, what I, the way I see my work in conversation with theirs is that I'm also uh, interested in that, but I'm interested more in, well, what did people do t- to get out alive? Uh, how did people survive on a daily basis, given uh, so many of the threats and the risks around them? Very good. Very good. And um, I, your book really did a lot for me in, in terms of, you know, you, you previously were talking about how, you know, you want to get the lives of the folks, uh, the, the enslaved folks who are dealing, you know, with the lives within these, these refugee camps. And uh, one of the parts about your book, right? Refugee and camps uh-huh. in today's discourse, um, take it, take it out of the history profession and bring it to American politics right now. Uh, mm-hmm. Did you specifically 
have in mind maybe a connection? Did you see any connection with in your work um, with the particular uh, locations that you're dealing with with the camps? Did you see any um, parallels to what is happening today on, mm-hmm. you know, like the American southern border uh, land? Do, do you see any connections there? Yes. And that kind of grew over time as, so I worked on this book for about 10 years. And um, as we know, especially in the last couple years, uh, our attention has been drawn to, as you say, the Southern border, but also refugee crises around the world. And so uh, my, the the connections I've drawn have really uh, grown over time. I don't want to say that there's like a universal refugee experience because- You know, we're, we're good historians. We're rooted in time and place. There's very unique things about each context. But I did find um, that some of the work that, say, geographers have done about migration and refugee crises were really helpful to me. Um, there are some things that are universal. And maybe one thing, for example, just one connection I have drawn to today, during the Civil War, at one point, these army commanders in the South, they want, you know, they, they don't want to deal with a refugee crisis. And um, some of them say, maybe we need to move these people up to northern states and resettle them there. And so one Virginia commander, for example, John Dix, he writes to northern governors. He starts writing to them and saying, let's start resettling. And the northern governors say no including somebody like Governor John Andrew of Massachusetts, who is very much anti-slavery. He would go on to found or to help form uh, the 54th Massachusetts U.S. uh, Regiment. So um, here we see this really interesting moment where I I hate to draw this connection, but I'm going to do it anyway. These northern governors like build a wall. You know, as soon as I say that, people are going to, um, saying, oh, come on now. But it's a metaphoric one um, in which they do not want to see this migration north. And why not? Uh, for all sorts of reasons, rooted in race, of course, is number one. Um, but some of them are concerned, they're Republicans, they're concerned about their Democratic challengers and how they might seize on this issue um, in the in the next elections. So um that is a big, that's a connection that we can draw. It was a really interesting one to me. And um, what I found then happen after these Northern governors say no, um, we see more and more humanitarian groups emerge in the North to start sending a lot of clothing and money and school supplies and Bibles into the South. And um, that is in some ways a phenomenon that is seen in other refugee crises around the world where Um, The more that humanitarian aid flows over borders, the less likely refugees are to move from where they are. Um, And so that was sort of an insight I got out of the refugee literature that uh, I then saw really at work here in the the U.S. Civil War. And, 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 you know, that's why I asked the question, because at first with me, when I looked at your uh, you know the last couple words in your in your title, and it made me really think about you know what what's been really going on as a global uh, crisis, mm-hmm. which you know Ben could just say, have has there ever been a time where there were not you know refugees in some kind of right. capacity uh, globally? Um, and uh, with that as well, can you speak to us a bit about um, you know 
one of the parts that I found really uh, intriguing about your work is how something like, you know, there have been work about environmental histories of of the mm-hmm. uh, American Civil War that, that are being uh, published now. And I think that sections of your work contribute to that conversation, too. Yeah. Yeah. So that was new for me. Uh, this was a, a new line of analysis for me uh, as a historian. But, you know, I set out to understand how people lived and survived in these camps. And that question forced me to think more and to look more at the material realities of life in these camps. So what they looked like, how they were built, um, where they were built, um, you know, clothing, um, physical possessions, all sorts of things, all the things that go into surviving on a daily basis I had to um, focus on. But the environmental angle was really interesting to me. And it I mean, honestly, it kind of emerged from the sources. And then I had to really go sort of catch up on the environmental history literature in order to be able to interpret it. Um, but one thing that I talk about in the book, I'll just share, is uh, the I was interested in the placement of refugee housing, which starts off as tents and eventually in many places becomes a little more permanent. Um, the placement of them in relation to uh, the Union Army. And, you know, one thing that becomes obviously clear is that refugees had kind of the last choice when it came to where to set up camp. And usually where they were relegated to was the least desirable land. And it was the lowest lying land, usually in an encampment near a river, near a creek, near something that was going to overflow and flood them out, uh, which often happened. So in interesting ways, I mean, actually tragic ways, I shouldn't just say interesting, but um, we can see what environmental scholars call an environmental racism playing out there um, on the land. And uh, that would absolutely affect their day-to-day experience and survival. And, and, you know, I'm actually um, on my way to Rutgers University in New Brunswick. Shouts out to the Scarlet Knight family. Shouts out to y'all. Um, and uh, one of the things that uh, I'm, I'm interested in in the um, Appalachian uh, South Southeast, specifically around the Great Smoky Mountains region, is uh, looking at you know environmental histories in in a way that I never thought when I was taking a science class in in in, in high school and undergrad. If if I would have known this now, I probably would have paid more attention. Um, and mm-hmm. so, yeah. yeah, because, you know, as historians, you know, well, as for, for many, obviously there are environmental historians, so I don't want to overstate this. Well, but, you know, I was going to say in your, yeah. de- in your defense, it's really kind of exploded in the last decade or two, you know, and, and it really keeps growing. So there's a reason why we weren't really paying much attention to the environment for a long time. Right, right. Um, and that it would be something more recently. I mean, I did, I've did. i been on the same journey as you in that respect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and yeah. so it's one of those situations where I was, um, I was, I'm employed now by the National Park Service. And uh, one of the projects is actually looking at, you know, like using, uh, helping the uh, park archaeologists kind of map on, on present park borders where enslaved populations live um, in and around the park so that we can better understand and situate the the actual lives of enslaved people 
And uh, one of the parts about that project is an environmental uh, history that I'm very much interested in because of, you know, space, geography, all these different things. And so for me, it was very interesting to see that ingrained in your work in a way that I, just by reading your title, I couldn't Mm -hmm. see that. So I think that that is uh, fairly, that's one of the great parts about reading books is that once you see the title and like what the display art is, the cover art, Uh it's a lot more than that. And so your book definitely contributed that part for for me as a reader. Uh Well, that's, thank you. I'm glad to hear that. Um, It's interesting the work you're describing that you're doing with the park service, because one thing that happened as I was writing this book and it started before I got started, but really took off um, our local historic sites are beginning to emerge in the site of these refugee camps And one of the things that is going on is trying to figure out exactly where these sites were um, and down to the level of where was the housing and what kind of housing was it. And so there's been archaeological work done, for example, at Camp Nelson, Kentucky, which is just down the road from me, um, that uh, is doing really incredible work to try to reimagine these spaces. Because, I mean, that's the one reality that's a little bit different from other civil war sites is that these were, these pretty much disappeared and uh, there's not much left. And so there, there's really some really important creative reimagining work that has to be done. <clears throat> and and so you talked about Kemp Nelson just then, um, you know, you have different spaces that we're looking at. So before we get too far away, just for the listeners who have not read your book, but clearly will after this interview, uh, they'll definitely go to UNC <laughs> Press. Um, there might just even be a discount at this time. Who knows? And so 40%. 40% off, y'all. 40%. Oh, I shouldn't say that because it may not last. But 40% if, is what if it is If you're listening now. to it at this point, this today is now. <laughs> uh, I'm on the East Coast. It is May 8th, Wednesday, May 8th of 2019. And if you're listening to this anytime in this time frame, in this month, Go and get it. 40% off. Go to Amazon. Go get it. Just period. <laughs> just do that. That, you know, put to the side. Um, you know, can you talk to us about uh, uh, spatially, geographically, where uh, the camps that your study uh, uh, is, you know, where, where where your study writes about, where, where those locations are? Sure. They, um, you see them, if you see a map, and I do provide a map in the book, you see them congregating along the Atlantic coast, so the coast of Virginia and the Carolinas, and then, excuse me, into Kentucky, and then down the Mississippi River Valley, and throughout Tennessee, excuse me. So uh, if you look at the map, and you're familiar at all with the history of the Union Army's movements through the South during the Civil War, um, it's basically the imprint of where the Union Army moved. So what that tells us is that uh, these camps emerged in places, one, where enslaved people could get away, although there was enormous risk for anybody who got away, um, but also in places where the Union Army was present and where there were Union Army commanders who were willing to let them stay. And that's a whole other question. So, so that's the general footprint of where they emerge, but they're uh, rural and urban. So some of the cities in the Mississippi River Valley, Memphis, Vicksburg, were the sites of some of these camps. 
but then remote plantations in Tennessee um, and in other places uh, were also. So um, they're along rivers. They're really along the coast, as I said. So there's kind of a, a variety of places where they emerge. And and with that too, um, I, I'm, I'm I was very interested as well because your book does a lot about you know really thinking about like design, right? So I'm thinking about like audiences, right? So we talked about the environmental folks, but then also you brought up you know the structural design of these spaces too, which makes me think about as a whole different kind of audience. So can you speak to us about, so, so we talked about the location, we talked about, you know, some of like the, uh, the, the spaces and, and such, but so can we go more ground level and talk to us about how the camps were actually designed, right? Because had there been, had for the people who are helping to design these spaces, if design is even the right word to kind of think about this, these, these spaces, uh-huh. w- were there any times that um, uh, that the United States government had to like learn how to do this in, in prior engagement? So like the prior part, but then also how were they structurally designed? Like I said, if design is the right word uh-huh. in the time frame that they were occurring through the Civil War. Sure. Well, there's really almost a life cycle of some of these camps, and they take different forms at different times. So the beginning of a settlement, when the very first people arrive, they don't look like much, except uh, they can probably count on getting an old cast-off tent from the army. Uh, Usually they were worn tents. And so you might just see a collection of tents on the landscape there. Um, But then over time, what happens is in places that are more removed from active combat, places that are a bit more stable militarily, what happens is that the people themselves, they want to build something more permanent. They don't want to just live in an old holy tent without a floor anymore. Um, They're imagining the beginning of a new future. So they start wanting to build. Um, and then the army um, it, you know, wants to see that as well. Um, they, you know, this is something that soldiers do already when they are you know, in camp for a winter and are going to be in place for a long time. They might start building something more permanent. So it's part of the military convention. And um, as they start building houses in some places, we see people emerge. You call them designers. That's an interesting word. I don't, I'm not sure if I used design. I used planner because I almost saw this process as almost like an, a modern day urban planning kind of process um, where you have maybe a local military official or it might be a missionary who has come down from the north and is now in this local place. Uh usually always white, um, who emerges to say, okay, if we're going to start building more permanent housing, let's do it in a way um, that conforms to our notions of order. And um, it becomes a really interesting process in a place like uh, Mitchellville, South Carolina, Freedman's Village, which is in Arlington, Virginia, Um, later on in the war, Camp Nelson, Kentucky. These are just a few of the examples where what I call these planned settlements emerge. And um, those who are doing the planning, they're thinking a lot about race. 
They're thinking about um, questions like, do we want to create a settlement of Black people or do we want to, do we need to create an integrated settlement? How do we want to spate, you know, organize people across space? What is the order, spatial order of freedom is what they're asking. Um, they also consider questions about, you know, some of these, the white northerners, they now take it upon themselves to start um, sort of imposing ideas about citizenship and what, how should uh, a formerly enslaved person, you know, um, what sort of quality should they have to be a citizen? And they start imagining these planned settlements as a way to kind of force spatially certain qualities of a good citizen. So for example, and stop me if I'm just going on and on, there's so much I can say about this. Hey, but, keep going, keep going. Um, I'm, I'm cool with it. Oh, okay. Okay, <laughs> cool. Um, for example, in some places we have these white military missionary officials they look out at, say, the family life of these uh, formerly enslaved people, and some of them say, "Uh-uh, that's not that's not right." You know, a, a, a proper family is a nuclear family. It's male, you know, fa- mother, father, child structure. Um, you know, this is the this is the proper order of freedom, and so and they they set about trying to encourage that kind of family structure in ways that Tara Hunter describes in her fantastic book, Bound in Wedlock. You know, they're holding marriage ceremonies um, and so forth. But also what I see spatially, they start requiring that the houses are built kind of small. So they only house one nuclear family. Um, And this is a way to kind of disaggregate the population and sort of start getting them living like the way they white Northerners envision um, the proper social order of freedom. So that's just, there's, there's a lot to this part of the story, but um, that's one way in which they're really manipulating space and the planning process to um, start thinking ahead to freedom and citizenship. And that is just so interesting. Oh man, that, that, a lot of times it makes me think about like the 20th century work of people like E. Franklin Frazier and, you know, the Moynihan report and these sure. different, uh, you know, these different kind of sociological, you know, uh, uh, studies of, of yeah. black families in, in really right. trying to structure, at least in the 20th century uh, uh, designs uh, or planning of what, you know, what, what was the what was the structure of African American families? Uh, what was the structure of Black families? And, and you know, interpreting that as you know what they did, and it's so interesting that a hundred, you know, depending on the particular uh, study and the figure, uh, somewhere around a hundred years later, two generations, three generations later, what do you see? Like this is literally happening during the civil Mm -hmm. war and i think that the part that always intrigues me about policies like this during the civil war there's no telling whether or not the win is actually going to come like that that's the part that always fascinates me about like you're planning on something right you may have won this particular area of mississippi or this you know the mississippi valley that's there's no telling whether or not by whatever the final t- uh, the f- the final agreement of the war would be, right? Oh, Confederate win, a Confederate loss, or a truce, or whatever that looks like. 
whether or not you're going to actually still be in that same space to be able to continue with this quote unquote experimental living arrangement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a profoundly uncertain process, which I don't even think those words even adequately capture what must have been going through the minds of those who were living it. Um, but, and, and so what was very striking to me is um, not just that, you know, these white Northerners are starting to help manipulate and, and create these new settlements, but it's, it's the men, women, and children themselves who, you know, they're, they're fleeing into a war zone. They don't know if they're going to be able to stay in that spot even for very long. And yet what's amazing is how they, they get right away. They're establishing new churches. They are, of course, building the houses, planting gardens, starting new businesses, um, you know, even though they don't know if it's going to last. And I just think that was a, it's a really remarkable uh, act. And I mean, one that shows us that, you know, the work of building a new life was really kind of the most urgent in their minds. Um, and uh, I don't know, I, I think it's also an, a reflection of some great optimism and hope as well. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Throughout your Throughout our discussion so far, and largely through the book, you, uh, the American Missionary Association and and just missionary uh, work just generally play a dramatic role in your text. Can you talk to us a bit? Because one of the things that I've always been interested about missionaries, um, black and white specifically. Uh, yes. The the you talked about this even briefly before. This tinge, or probably a little more t- than a tinge of paternalism even Mm anti-blackness even like i said even from you know largely northern black folks or uh black folks who might have even been born in the south as even enslaved people run away and then come back in these particular capacities really holding very anti-black southern anti anti anti-black enslaved you know kind of tendencies um, did you see that also within the work of many of the missionaries that, that you're writing about in your study? So generally the paternalism or specifically on the part of Northern free African-American um, people. Well, I'm looking at them generally as not in a more, yeah. you know, not as a yeah. one all, but you know, yeah. they're a part of the same kind of yeah. general organization though. They function generally. Sure. Yeah, I mean it's it's there everywhere, um, and uh, it's you know one of the things I talk about are the schools and the churches um, that these northern missionaries come in and, and help to set up, and um, it, it kind of takes form in different ways. I mean, one of the most striking initially is, are the comments these missionaries have about the religious worship of enslaved people. Um, the, the enthusiasm of it, um, you know, it's just not the same kind of more formal, um, kind of 
type of worship than than we practice up in the north. And uh, so one of their their great uh, efforts is to um, you know we're going to sort of teach them the proper way to worship. And uh, what happens in some of these places is that they start losing some of their followers uh, among the refugees who then prefer, they've always had their own ministers and those ministers are with them and they prefer uh, to worship with them. So there's some direct pushback against the missionaries when it comes uh, to some degree to religious worship. Um, So that's one of the great examples. I also get into uh, the provision of relief and particularly clothing. And uh, there's definitely some of that, paternalistic sense, we know better than you, let us guide you. Um, That is going on as well when it comes to how one should dress. And um, that I get into quite a bit as well. (laughs) Interesting. And yeah, you know, I've uh, a couple of conferences I've been to, you know, kind of talked about, you know, the missionary aspect of, um, of, uh, of, you know, this freedom process and, you know, the AMA or, you know, if I'm not mistaken, they're also in Canada um, as well during uh, the, uh-huh. the antebellum period, and yeah. so, we're around the right. Atlantic. And, and I, yeah. you know, I and someone else like a uh, abolitionist from New York, uh, uh, J. W. C. Pennington, you know, is a if I'm not mistaken, an important uh, feature of their work too. So, so just seeing those particular parallels and mm-hmm. the work that I'd seen in the antebellum era made me think about like yeah. like how little I know about how large the AMA were. Um, uh, in, in this particular uh-huh. time frame, and so, um, so, so, thank you for for illuminating yeah, that they, for, for, for me. Well, they're they're a crucial they're a crucial part of the whole story. They're everywhere in the South, and um, it's not just the AMA. The Quakers also uh, become a really big presence right. um, in parts of the Mississippi Valley and Virginia. So, you know, there's a lot more to say about them and their role in all of this. Um, one thing I found interesting is the way that they. Yes, they they bring in their sort of sense that we need to groom these formerly enslaved people for freedom, but they also bring um, a sense of advocacy too when it comes to dealing with the army and the military. And very often, it's a missionary who kind of intervenes when the army is, um, you know, acting in a way that is inhumane um, and uh, is doing something that's threatening the welfare. Of, of refugee men, women, and children. So um, they, they really, their place in all this is kind of complicated and, uh, but really important. Absolutely. And so with the slave refugee camps and complication, that's a great way to actually pivot to how do, um, how do formerly enslaved new United States colored troop soldiers, right? How do they help to kind of complicate the, the 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 fashioning of the um of of the of the refugee camps once they are able to fight in the civil war formally yeah sure well that's an interesting question what so that comes really in earnest in early 1863 by that point these camps have been around for about 2 years already So one of the most noticeable things that happens is once men enlist, they start getting sent off and they start getting separated from family. And this is actually a, I mean, this is a really problematic moment for some of these families who have 
run off, either escape together or maybe not together, but they've reunited in one of these camps. And now here's the prospect of this man going off. Um, there, there is quite a bit of evidence of in some places when the USCT recruitment takes place that it is done with a great deal of force, um, that we can call it impressment rather than a real voluntary enlistment. Now, I'm not, I'm not extrapolating and saying that men didn't volunteer, they did. But there are places where force happened. And a lot of times it, that was happening and there was you know, resistance to enlisting. It was because of this potential to separate uh, from families. And so it was a really scary prospect for them. Um, so, but, but once men did enlist, um, there is this separation. And so in some of these camps become more heavily dominated by women and children than they had been before. Um, so that does change the dynamics, of course. And, um, yeah, that's a really, you know, you've identified a pretty important transition moment in the whole story. And, and to continue on with that thread too, with many, obviously not all, um, enslaved men being gone, but a large, you know, a a rather large population leaving from these particular camps, what then would the lives of enslaved women, or I I think even just even before I even go there, during this time frame, right, they're enslaved labor camps. Are they considered uh, uh, emancipated in these camps? Because... Because oh, that is a more complicated question than people really yeah. know. <laughs> That's, yeah. So it depends. I mean, this sounds like a waffly academic answer, but it's the truth. It depends on where they are. And it depends on the willingness of the local union officials to recognize their freedom. But um, in terms of where they are, um, e- Technically, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation includes a great number of exemptions. Um, border states are exempted. So a place like Kentucky, what happens there is camps form and then the union kind of breaks them down. Um, but by 1864, they're starting to form. But yet slavery is still legal in the eyes of the union in Kentucky. It's a union state. It's exempt from the Emancipation Proclamation. So I do study and do talk about people who are inside Camp Nelson, Kentucky, but are still viewed as slaves in the eyes of the Union. And so what happens is uh, they start working for the Union and the wages that they're earning are getting sent back to their master, their owner. So um, you can see in some places the union is still viewing many people as enslaved labor and are treating them that way. But at that very same moment that that's happening at Camp Nelson, Kentucky, uh, you can go to the coast of South Carolina and the union is acknowledging uh, that the people there are free and that there is a duty on the union's part to protect their freedom. So it's a widely variegated story. This adds to, you know, we mentioned the uncertainty before, the uncertainty, you know, is the union even going to win the war? This is going to stay permanent. Well, then there's the uncertainty about, well, where do I go to have my freedom recognized? And that's a really difficult uh, part of the story. And and that part just makes me just so, so man, if I'm a listener right now, I'm thinking like, dang, I really got to go buy this book. What are they talking about? I've never heard of this before. Hey, man, neither. <laughs> hey, I, I haven't either. This uh, is, this it's is amazing. So, it's, 
it's, this is just so complicated. And I know we say that about every historical subject. You know, we all think our subjects are complicated. So I'm probably guilty of that a little bit. But at the same time, I mean, I was continually struck by how difficult it was to wrap my mind around the whole story um, because it does play out so differently in different places and then differently over time. And, and with that, too, um, what did... You know, and, and this is going to be the question I asked before I, I thought about, man, are they considered enslaved still? But um, what did what did the mm-hmm. enslaved women and children who were left behind? You know, I'm not going to actually actually reverse that. They're not left behind. They were yeah. something, but I wouldn't necessarily say left behind. But for those that were still there. Right. We'll just say yeah. that for those that were still in the camps, what kind of lives did they face, especially because you still have many of them around where they were in, formerly enslaved or where where they labored for the majority of their lives. So 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 what did they, that yeah. look like for them on the ground? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'll I'll use the Mississippi Valley as an example and what happens there when black recruitment gets going in um, 1863 and men start forming their regiments and, and going to other places, um, the union decides that the women and children, and they, what they really mean are children ages 12 and up, should take on a different kind of laboring role for the union. And this role is to occupy and cultivate the cotton plantations that the union has seized. So in the Mississippi Valley, we see kind of, you know, the women and children going in one direction and men in another. It's not absolute. There are still men also going to the cotton plantations. But um, so what they're doing there is they, the union is leasing these plantations to either northerners who come down um, into the south or to white southerners who uh, claim that they're loyal to the union or to, in some cases, um, African-American leasees who are starting to lease the property as well, uh, Black Southerners. So uh, then we see the the women and children getting sent to these plantations. So some of them, you know, I haven't traced exactly that somebody went to the exact same plantation they were enslaved in, but they probably did, um, or they were nearby, as you say. And um, so they are cultivating cotton again. And... uh, you know, there is a whole system by which they are to be paid, but the Union Army did have a, a, a real problem with not consistently making sure wages were actually paid throughout the war. So there was that. Um, and some of the people who were leasing these plantations, although they were supposed to be implementing a free labor system, they still, in some cases, uh, seem to be operating a lot like an enslaver did. And they would sometimes even hire old overseers. So there is a uh, replication of the old system uh, that takes place for some of these women and children. Um, in the eyes of the Union, you know, this is good military work. They're occupying land. They're helping to secure the river valley, right? Especially right along the river. Um, but the way it plays out is it's, it's too much like the slavery of old. And, uh, and then there's a whole other layer where, um, women and children who are located on these plantations in great numbers become 
targets for Confederate guerrillas who uh, see that see their vulnerability and um, really pounce. And some of the most awful, terrifying violence of the whole war, I would say, uh, takes place against those settlements of women and children. So that's, um, yeah, it's a really, really devastating part of the story. And speaking of devastating, um, in a different kind of way, one of, if not the most wow-filled moments I had was actually reading between pages 137 and 139. And that is the the West Bogan. Infrared. I don't know if oh. Bogan or Bogan. Um, yeah. A, a, a part. And, you know, not to give it all away, of course. Because, you know, people still <laughs> got to go get the book, right? Uh, can you talk a bit about that that particular story because the the West mm-hmm. Bogan story was just probably one of those stories that for me made me think how in the hell could this happen and something else not happen afterwards mm-hmm. oh what a story that is so for those who aren't familiar because it's not a well-known story um, this this is a story that's involves some of the other people I write about in the book. I I follow the story of a woman named Eliza Bogan in the Mississippi River Valley. And um, what happens is um, she, she and some others are with the black regiments in the Mississippi Valley. They've left their plantations, but not all the people who were enslaved on those plantations, not all their family and neighbors have gone with them. And some are still back uh, on the plantations. And on this one plantation known as the Bogan, um, it was owned by a man named Monroe Bogan. Um, what happens there is the, the owner becomes even more violent as his desperation to hold on to his enslaved people grows. And um, one day, a man named West Bogan, who, um, you know, was trying to get to the local union encampment in Helena, Arkansas, um, he, you know, he's trying to do it. And uh, instead, his, his owner, Monroe Bogan, uh, shows up at the quarters and a fight breaks out between them. And ultimately, West fights back because he knows that in the eyes of the Union, he is a free man. And, you know, Monroe Bogan is keeping him in bondage regardless. And he's going to fight to get to freedom. And so a fight breaks out and Monroe Bogan, um, he kills Monroe Bogan and he makes his way to Helena. And so what results is a... um, a court martial case because this whole region is under martial law uh, directed by the union. And, uh, you know, originally, you know, West just makes his way into union army lines and starts to work for the union, but then they figure out what had happened back on his plantation and they arrest him for murder and he is put on trial. And it's a really fascinating case in which union authorities kind of, struggle about what to do. And again, yeah, I don't want to give it all away, (laughs) but um, 
you know, on the one hand, there are some who say murder's murder and he should be convicted. And on the other hand, there are those who say, but wait, he was uh, wrongly held in bondage and that this was a reasonable form of self-defense on his part. And uh, so it's a, a really interesting case in which the union is is struggling and ultimately figures out, um, you know, how much to allow enslaved people to take matters into their own hands and fight their way to freedom. And let me, again, I don't want to give away every detail, yep, but yep. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, like I said, like y'all, when you read that part, you're gonna, you're gonna be astounded. You're, you're gonna, you're gonna learn one of the most underknown, but yet, oh my gosh, kind of, you know, moments in, in the civil war, uh, Full stop. Full stop. Um, and so yeah. with that, can can we transition a bit about your process writing this book? Um, you know, you talked about, you know, it took uh, you said somewhere around 10 years, I think. Uh, so, so can you talk to us a bit about how the book was constructed in the sense of like how what's your process as a writer coming up with this particular book? Well, in a nutshell, my process is really messy. Okay. I, okay. I, I, I rewrite and I ditch stuff and I redo it and I restructure and it took a long time. Um, <clears throat> what I was trying to do with this book is I, I wanted readers to simultaneously see the big picture and really kind of see how this history played out over time and space on the one hand. But then it was really important for me to get down to the level of an individual. Because I feel like getting back to my original question, how what was it like to live and to survive this? One almost has to follow an individual's day-to-day journey. Um, it's it's the way you see kind of the all the basic, you know, dilemmas and and um, you know the the difficulty of the choices that they make, you can see on that level. So I, I do have three, uh, three people or three groups of people who anchor my story, and I really follow their journeys, but I intersperse their stories with um, more of a macro lens. I kind of pull back and uh, describe the big picture. So I hope that people get a sense of both the breadth and the depth of this whole history. And and what kind of uh, what what particular archives were you going to uh, for for this particular work? Did you uh, did you go like physically located to the spaces where some of them digitized? What was that process like for you? So it started actually at the National Archives, and it started in the military records. And uh, I knew from the amazing work that the Freedmen and Southern Society Project has done. Um, and in, you know, editing and publishing military records, I knew there was a lot of potential there. So I did spend, uh, you know, basically on and off a couple of years at the National Archives, really digging into just, you know, records of the provost marshal in some outpost or Russian records of ration, food rations uh, distributed and that sort of thing. But I did want to get out of that archive. Um, and obviously, you know, I got into the missionary records and the newspapers, but it was also important for me to visualize where these places were. And so I did go to um, several local communities 
and uh, fortunately was able to get to know people in some of these places who also were interested in this history and were working to try to preserve it. So one example was in near Fort Monroe in Hampton, Virginia. There's an organization, a local group called the Contraband Historical Society. And um, I connected with them and, um, you know, they gave me a tour and showed me what they had figured out. I later sent them documents I'd found in the archive and we kind of developed a nice relationship uh, sharing information about what we had found. And uh, that was really uh, a wonderful connection to make and to be able to kind of see, oh, here are the waterways where people were crossing. Um, This is what it was like to walk through the stone gate of Fort Monroe, like I could see how imposing it was for myself uh, just standing there. Um, And so I did the same thing in some other places too. And, uh, you know, I I don't know if those sorts of observations don't necessarily make its way into the book per se, but maybe helped me read the records and understand what it was that people were seeing and doing. Outstanding, outstanding. And so in the last couple of minutes that we have you, um, so your book is out. Clearly I began the interview with the um a beautiful amount of accolades that are only going to keep coming for you for uh for for embattled freedom um but you know are you um in in the work in the works for another project or taking a little bit of time off what's next for you Mm, that's a great question. I um, I have taken a little bit of time off, but I have a few smaller projects that grew out of this one, things that didn't quite make it into the book that I at least want to publish an article um, or somehow get more of the story into print. Um, I have toyed with, there was an interesting case, uh, really, well, it's the last effort at colonizing African-American people to Haiti that takes place in 1863 and 1864. And it involves some of the people I described in this book who refugeed themselves to Hampton, Virginia and Fort Monroe. Um, And so I've thought about writing something about their experience where they go to Haiti and they, well, they really go to Isle of Osh, which is an Island, uh, a smaller Island there. And, um, and their experience there, and ultimately what happens is it's it's not what is imagined and not what they hope for, and they appeal to come back, and they do come back to the U.S. Um, so it's a really, it's an emancipation story. It's another, it's a colonization story, but it's also a um, really another chapter in um, U.S. Haitian relations, too. So I've thought about that, but I've also was interested in... Um, this is maybe more of an article, but uh, during the war, the U.S. government was really interested in trying to create a census in various places to try to um, sort of even document who these formerly enslaved people were, where did they come from, what do we know about them? And it sort of reflects this kind of desire of policymakers to kind of have some control um, and uh, sort of control and know this population. And these censuses are very difficult and none of them really take off. But I was thinking about uh, something along those lines too. Exceptional. I actually um, have I recently came across uh, at the University of Delaware, I work with the uh, Color Conventions Project and one of, yeah. yeah. So, and, and, 
it is. It is. Shout out to the project team. Shout out to you, Dr. Foreman, and everybody else. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah. And one of the folks that I write about, because uh, I'm uh, constructing a, an exhibit on uh, Florida and the color conventions movement, and the person who called the most well-known Florida convention was actually um, someone who is involved in a particular way adjacent to what your first project is, and that's uh, uh, Jay Willis Menard, um, who helped to go down. He he went down at the um, at, with the help of uh, the Lincoln administration to British Honduras to scout for a potential colonization effort to what is now Belize for for African Americans. And uh, and I was like, whoa, whoa, this is, you know, we always hear about that meeting that Lincoln had with the with the black um, with the black clergymen uh, and and they would just rebuke him, say, no, we're not going this and this. So we always hear about that, but we don't hear about Mm -hmm. specifically like someone like Menard or at least as much um, about his involvement. So I just thought like, whoa, that's a pretty interesting uh, process. And so hearing about your work and also reading that that bit about uh, the enslaved folks off the coast of Haiti, that that freed African-Americans off the coast of Haiti who try to, you know, they move there. It made me think about those two things happening uh, in similar time frames and thinking like, whoa, this is. Is important uh, work. Yeah, yeah, and there's a lot of inner tensions among the people in Virginia. Um, you know, I, I encountered one man who was kind of emerging as a leader among the African Americans uh, community there in Virginia, and you know, he's kind of skeptical of this whole Isle of Ash thing, you know, and he sort of writes to various people he knows in the government, wondering like, really, is this? is this going to be as good as they're selling it to be? Um, and there's a, there's some definite inner tension and conflict about whether to go. Um, and it's, so it's, it's quite a, again, complicated. Yep. I'm going to use that word again, but um, pretty complex story. So similar to what you're describing, I think. 100%. And so, you know, it's been a pleasure and an honor over the last 56 minutes and now 45 seconds of the last time <laughs> on the interview and much further in our um, in our non-recorded uh, time as well, talking about our work and, and travels and such. And so uh, thank you so much for this opportunity to, to interview you. Your book is exceptional and, and the awards are just one way of explaining that. Um, and so Dr. Amy Morell Taylor, who has written an amazing book published by our friends at UNC Press. And thank you to our friends at UNC Press for allowing me to, to get this book, uh, Embattled Freedom, Journeys Through the Civil War Slave Refugee Camps. And if all, and, and if our listeners want to get in contact with you, um, how could they reach you? Sure. Uh, they can email me at my Kentucky email address, which is amtaylor1 at uky.edu. I'm always happy to talk about this history and, you know, help people maybe who are trying to do some research along these lines as well. So, so thank you so much for having me. I, I really appreciate the time you've put into this and um, that you even read my book to start with. So thank you. No problem. And graduate students, scholars, and, and, and folks outside of the academy will all read this book and learn a whole lot about a particular part of our history that, um, definitely helps to inform us at least in a little bit about a particular situation that are occurring in the United States presently 
and throughout the globe uh, generally as well. And so I am your host, Adam McNeil of New Books in African American Studies. And if you're if you're interested in more of this particular content, please go and subscribe and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the various spaces like Stitcher that you can get all of these all at once. And so once again, I'm your host, Adam McNeil of New Books in African American Studies. Until next time, folks, over and out. <laughs>